Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is the show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic guest this week, you might recognize if you came to see my Edinburgh show, he's an American journalist and you know, Welcome to Trigonometry. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for coming. Uh, listen, for anyone who doesn't know you, which is an increasingly small number of people these days, just tell us who are you, how are you, where you are, what's been your journey through life? I uh, most recently became infamous, on, or depending on the audience, famous <laughs> for, the, for being the victim of an Antifa beating and robbery in Portland, Oregon. I, I cover demonstrations there quite frequently and um, it was on the 29th of June that I was attacked and part of that was caught on video and I was uh, left with a brain injury from that attack and we're now as of this recording over two months since that incident and there hasn't been a single arrest. Mm. And one of the, the, the arguments that was, that was used by some people inexplicably to me to, to defend these people beating you up was that you are right wing and that somehow entitles people to beat you up uh, as a journalist. So, uh, and you have said that you are right of center. So I, I, I wanted just to explore what that means. Not that that would in any way justify anyone attacking you, of course. Uh, so where are you politically? I'm just curious. Yeah, it was Joe Rogan who, who asked me if there was, I think he asked if there was a gun put at your head and you had to answer it, how would you? Mm. And that was the first time I said, uh, right to center. I think uh, I've avoided labels for a long time, but I guess if I had to pick, I picked what I said because the positions that I have that are important to me, I think have been more so aligned with the right, at least in the American context. For example, um, I'm very I'm patriotic. I'm very thankful that the United States provided refuge to my parents who are political refugees. And in the U.S. now, that's seen, that is seen as a conservative or right-wing position to have gratitude for um, citizenship and um, thanking America for what it is, for the freedoms that it protects, right? Uh, so there's that. It's, there's also my parents' experience with escaping communism makes me not have the luxury of viewing Antifa and other revolutionary um, far-left movements with the same rose-colored glasses. So I am very critical of Antifa, as anybody who follows my work knows, uh, and I've written critically about Marxism as well. So. Just because of, I would say it's those two main things that it's been easy for people to la label me as a conservative writer if they're being charitable, they're being more, um, they're more trying to delegitimize me or smear me, they'll say that I'm a far-right person. So you, you mentioned about Antifa. Now, Antifa is something that I've only recently become aware of. Who are Antifa and what, what do they want to achieve? It's a movement that began in Europe, particularly in Germany, in the years post-World War II. Um, the subculture that it grows out of is um, anti-racist punk scene. And the American version of it is, as we know today, very, a very recent pheno phenomenon. So, um, I have much more knowledge on the U.S. version of it compared to the, the older German or Western European versions. 
uh, in the U.S. It, it's had some type of presence in some progressive cities like Portland since the 2000s, but it became a much more mainstream thing from 2016 going forward. I mean, you know, just rewinding a few years, nobody expected Donald Trump to win, and Portland is an extremely progressive city. It's, I, I explained to outsiders that it's basically what the SG, SJW ethics and ethos of a university mainstreamed into entire city and through, through city government. So we had three days of protests that devolved into rioting in November 2016. And that was the first time that I saw uh, black bloc Antifa. They were going around in, in their masks and black outfits and destroying property and starting fires in the street. And because Trump continues to be such a polarizing figure and a lightning rod for um, fear-mongering on the left, um, him and his administration has been a, a very powerful propaganda win for Antifa. So now they are able to point to him or various things in his his policies or things that are done in his administration as evidence of ascendant and rising fascism. And it's pulled in a large number of people. I mean, it's still a fringe movement, but it's grown now to a point where the city and the public can no longer ignore. So um, that's why footage in Portland keeps going viral of these brawls on the street that look almost comical from a, you know, if you're watching the videos, they look outrageous, but um, like people, innocent people, regular citizens get caught up in it. And it's on my perception that because of the, the political monoculture of the, uh, not just the citizens, but those who are in government, that it seems like they're turning a blind eye to far left violence. And um, Portland's political structure is unique in that our mayor is also our police commissioner. So you can see the conflict of interest there, and he's up for re-election. Um, so there's just all these variables coming together of, uh, is what you see, what caused kind of what happened to me, and I wasn't the only victim. There's been others before me. There'll be those after me. And um, just through the course of my speaking up about the far-left militancy that's happening, not just in my city, but in the re that particular region of America, the Pacific Northwest. Um, I've been targeted quite a bit in the left-wing media. And before we touch on what happened to, to your assault, what, what is it that they want to achieve? Are they socialists? Do they want to overthrow the government introduce and, and put in a socialist government? Are they communists? What, 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 what are they? Antifa is a movement. I don't ever describe them as an organization. And some people, uh, because they're not too informed in it, describe them as a, a group. They're not. It's, it's an ideology that is made up of many groups. Mm. And some of them are ad hoc. So, you know, it could be something as a group, Antifa group that forms in opposition to an event that's happening a certain weekend or a conference or something that they oppose. Um, Portland is a bit different that we do kind of have a, an Antifa organization called Row City Antifa that's been around since two, 2007. And they have a Twitter, Facebook, uh, an online store. So, so they, they operate much more as a formal organization. And they were the ones who claimed responsibility for my attack. 
Um, what they, it's a movement made up of... Wait, Andy, sorry to interrupt, yeah. hold on. So this organization that exists, that has a physical address, that has a store, right? It's or, an online store. Online store, okay. But but presumably people know, we know who they are, right? No, we don't. We don't. They're entirely okay. anonymous. Okay. No, but, so but, but we can track it through a bank account. Well, I imagine if the police were interested enough, they could find yeah. out at least some of the people who are connected. So they claimed responsibility for beating you up. And yet, I presume they haven't been arrested, they haven't been tracked down, they haven't been prosecuted. Is that right? Correct. And um, why, why is that? Well, uh, I actually don't know. I speculate that it's because of his lack of political will in Portland to prosecute Antifa because they have quite a lot of support in the city. Um, I have my own legal team that's funded through a legal fund. I was taken on as a client for Publius Lex, which is a civil rights nonprofit. And it's of my view that my civil rights were violated in that me just working as a journalist, documenting things ha happening in a public space, have been continue continually attacked and intimidated, and more recently left with a serious injury, and that the policing tactics don't change and they just continue to allow citizens to get assaulted. Um, it's through that legal fund and uh, my own legal team that we're doing our own investigations to see what we can find because it does seem like there are systemic issues in Portland that it's not just isolated incidents of of street violence, but I mean, this has been going on for years now mm -hmm. and very, very few people ever get held accountable. And that, to me, it just seems so bizarre and ridiculous because you were seriously assaulted. I mean, I, I don't know the American term, the British term would say probably GBH, grievous bodily harm, of which someone would go to prison for six months to a year. And the fact that there doesn't seem to be any willingness to, in, to investigate, have they, have they opened an investigation about what happened? There's an ongoing investigation, but the Portland police aren't keeping me updated on mm. where they're at. And the one thing that I found quite upsetting, and I'm on the left, is the lack of sympathy that I saw from people on the left to what happened to you, as if, oh, you know, he's on the right, therefore he sort of deserves it, which I found to be abhorrent and an absolute callousness. Yeah, I think, like, you know, uh, one of your questions earlier was, like, what, what do Antifa want? The, it's a coalition made up of radical, extreme communists and anarchists and they really believe that they're at the vanguard of some revolution and that there's going to be a cosmic battle with the fascists and that they are going to um, be the ones who will be leading the, the anti-fascist side. It's beyond that, which sounds outrageous, there is a more coherent political theory behind it. Um, you know, my, I focus on Antifa, but I don't think they're like an existential threat to American democracy or anything. And it would be foolish to think so. America is a very, in this country as well, is very developed. Um, in political science, they call them uh, developed. Uh, excuse me, let me start that over. In political science, they call them, um, I can't it's recall fine. the term. Sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. In the, the United States, as well as this country, have developed democracies. There's no way that a small fringe movement can 
take over the country. However, that doesn't mean that Antifa can't find success through other ways. And I think what we're seeing in the US is that one of their goals is really to normalize political violence. Mm. And that used to not be a partisan issue in the US, but now it has become in that there are many mainstream politicians and thinkers and commentators on the left who, who have the view that if somebody has or is accused of having abhorrent views, they must be shut down by any means necessary. And that's actually one of the Antifa groups adopt that name, by any means necessary. So it can be through shutting them down, through doxing them, intimidating them, through assaulting them, and then if need be, um, something like what happened to me. So there's been a lot of disinformation and misinformation about me that have come from Antifa supporters and that um, they really accuse, believe that I am a far-right threat to them. And we'll get to that in a moment, Andy, but yeah. actually th none of that matters. If you're a journalist, even if you were a right-wing journalist who was there with to, to misrepresent part of it, there still doesn't entitle people to beat you up. That, that's not how civilized society works. And, and the biggest problem, of course, with all of this is that if violence is legitimized by one, legitimized by one side, what you're then doing is you're sending a message that violence is acceptable. What do you think the, far, the genuine far right, which does exist as a small fringe, what are they going to do? And as we know, uh, they are probably better at violence than, than the far left. So I don't think it, it in any way it matters what your political opinions are actually for, for whether this was legitimate or not. It's just not legitimate. And you know, you talked about it being comical initially or being seen as comical by outsiders. I remember watching prior to your incident um, footage of these Antifa protesters in Portland blocking off streets and directing traffic. And then an, a, 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 an old guy in his car being kind of, he, he tried to drive through and he was assaulted and, uh, and all this stuff. And the police standing there at the back just watching this whole yeah. thing. And anyone with any sense could see that that would then lead to Antifa becoming emboldened. Um, so how much of it is, as you say, the, the lack of political will in the city that has encouraged these people to feel like they can run around beating people up? You know, if I, I mean, it would be just speculation at this point, but my observation is what happens at these things is, these demonstrations is police will be on the periphery always within eyesight of sometimes the violence and things that happened before the violence. So like on May Day, what happened to me was that I had been uh, punched in the stomach and I reported it immediately to police who were just several yards away. And there's the response then, and I could still point out the suspect who was masked, but still within eyesight, the response then, as it's been every time, is that uh, we will not approach, speak to, confront, or detain a suspect because it could incite the crowd. So Antifa and other far-left militants have been basically been given a blueprint. It's like if, you, if we as a mob promise uh, violence, then the police just won't intervene. And um, that, that video that you talked about, that when they shut down the, the traffic in the street, that happens with actually quite uh, routinely in Portland. Like it's almost to the point now where like the violence on the streets is, is the banality. And people don't even, like just two weeks ago in Portland, there was, the city was bracing for some major demonstrations. And 
the fact that nobody was killed but several people were injured, that was seen as a success in the city and it was described as peaceful, which was shocking to me. Some of the video you've seen of people taking out concrete and throwing it at a bus that was trying to leave. I mean, you know, my detractors keep bringing up that, but these are the far right, they're extreme, they're white supremacists, whatever. You know, what happened that day is, regardless of whatever views these people have within the bus, they were trying to leave the, the, the demonstration and they were leaving in the area and they were prevented from leaving because traffic was shut down because of people in the street. And then these people rushed the bus and then there was this footage with the hammer and them trying and spraying, uh, people spraying bear mace inside the bus as they were driving off. Like, to me, it's almost like the views here are irrelevant. It's like this action of this violence where, where people are not just condoning it, but cheering them on because it's... Um, There's people they don't like. Yeah. Yes. There's people they don't like on the bus. But uh, how much of... Um, how much truth is in this idea that it's essentially two groups of extremists coming together to fight each other? Uh, because the, 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 they, they are, whenever I see Antifa being written about in the media, it's always they are counter-protesters. So the setup is that they are protesting against other people who've come to Portland to, to spread the hateful far-right ideas. How much truth is there to that? There is some truth to that, but more often than not what happens is a, some type of right-wing or conservative group will announce that they are holding some type of event in Portland. It can be something as simple as a small rally or holding American flags. The left-wing activists and Antifa will view that as a provocation and organize to come into, they say, defend our communities, but in, in the language of Antifa, what that really means is come to physically confront them. Uh, so there's that. Sometimes what happens is that uh, some of the right-wing groups will go to an event that Antifa has organized to, in the, they would say they're going there just to watch or listen to observe peacefully. Antifa views that as provocation. So, I mean, it's not like uh, both sides are equally to blame or both sides are equally blameless. Um, but what I see is that it's more so one side being unable to accept that there's this small group of people who have opposing views, who want to speak openly, um, like they can't tolerate that because they, they do believe that um, their ideas are so dangerous that if we allow, if we give them an inch, what we will have is the Holocaust again, mm. essentially. So they use a lot of language from the interwar years. They adopt uh, the symbols of the anti the anti-fascists from that time because they really think that they are part of that legacy of uh, the from the interwar years in Europe. They, uh, it's it's delusional. It's outrageous, um, and it would be funny if innocent people didn't get caught up in their violence. And Andy, how much responsibility do you think Trump needs to take for the fact that Antifa have grown because of the use of his rhetoric when and in his political rallies, refer, I mean, referring to people as sons of bitches, uh, Mexican immigrants, using the word rapists. Mm -hmm. And does that not, hey, does he not have to take some responsibility for the fact that this hard left have become emboldened? Well, Antifa's issues is with Trump, but primarily they take it out on his supporters. So 
you know, I mean, in, in the US and actually all around the world, we've been discussing for years now problems with Trump's rhetoric. And I just, I don't, you know, I feel like it, it's the same conversation over and over of like, he said something offensive, he said something that he didn't walk back very well, and that we're just going to be angry and upset about it, and we're going to go out to the streets and demonstrate. I think what I appreciate about him speaking out more now about Antifa is that it's bringing attention more to this extremist movement. Um, you know, I, of course, at the same time, I, we all have to recognize that um, it's not just his things that he's said, but um, I think his lack of action in being a good unifier has driven more of this polarization in, in America, which in turn does empower Antifa as well as uh, fringe elements on the right. And so, um, but I think at the end of the day, it's about holding people accountable for their own actions rather than, um, I, I just think it's too tenuous and of an argument to say that Trump is a, rad a radicalizing figure. But would you not, so for instance, if you were, so if you're a Latino person and you live in America and you hear him use those words, and you're a young, especially a young man of a certain age and certain, certainly being impressionable, would that not radicalize you? I, I, I could feel that I would be very angry at it and maybe want to protest against it or get upset and feel that the American president does not want to represent me. See, the only problem with the argument is Antifa are incredibly white, <laughs> right? That, that's, yes. They posted the mugshots of all the people who were arrested. They're all white. Oh, are they? Yeah. So, so I understand your argument, but uh, it doesn't seem to be borne out. I'm guessing most of these people are middle class vegans or whatever. You know what I mean? Yes. So the demographics of Antifa, at least in Portland, well, actually in other cities like D.C. or Berkeley, whatever, predominantly white. They will try to elevate like the few individuals who they, I think they use them as tokens, you know, they're a trans person of color or they're a disabled person to put them at the front of the line whereas where Black Bloc will stand behind them. Uh, I mean, it's just for optics. Every conference, every corporation yeah. does it handy, yeah. regardless, yeah. Republican, Democrat. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in, in response to your question, I think there's nothing wrong with protesting that's part of the American spirit, but like what Antifa and the allies are doing is it's not lawful protesting. It's mm. shutting down the streets. They call it direct action, physical confrontations with people. Um, and the label and the, the type of people that they, you know, they sometimes do genuinely go against, oppose true far-right figures, but because those number of people are really small and they need a constant threat to not only give themselves meaning, but to recruit other people, they've expanded very, very broadly who they consider a fascist or fascist supporting or Nazi in that, you know, now it encompasses people like me, for example. So mm. it's like, and then things that they do are, are criminal. And so I, there's a lot to, there are many issues with, with Donald Trump. I don't think that it, that, 
I'm not sure now at this point if he was just taken out of the picture if Antifa would just go away. It would be definitely harder for them to recruit. But many aspects of their ideology are, are basically have been mainstreamed by some of our politicians like AOC, for example, the demonization of law enforcement, the even just delegitimizing the concept of sovereignty in the U.S. So there's been, um, in the past two months, four incidents of immigration customs enforcement facilities being targeted, and one of them was by an Antifa militant in the state of Washington, close to, to Portland, mm -hmm. where one of them firebombed the facility, tried to ignite a 500-gallon propane tank, and came down with a rifle. He got killed before he killed anybody, but he left behind a manifesto. I'd actually crossed paths with him before. So, like, I and that was massively underreported. Yeah, it way. was, it was. So, like, the street hooliganism on the street is one aspect of it, but it's the ideology itself is very extreme. I mean, it's, it's like revolution by any means necessary, and we will take up arms. And, um, you know, the, the shooter, the mass shooter in Ohio recently. He didn't leave behind a manifesto as far as we know, but at least his social media footprint can give us a clue on his views. And he was extremely, he was a part of Antifa in that he attended the demonstrations in his uh, state, uh, expressed support for their views. And um, so I'm not sure if we can even really say that Antifa, that there's no body count on the Antifa side anymore. I mean, we'll see what the investigation finds, but uh, you know, this we don't know anything about the Ohio shooter's ideology beyond his social media, and he did leave a very extensive history of support for violent far-left militancy. And why do you think, because when I, uh, I was on holiday and I saw both of the shootings which happened in quick succession, and the first one, I think it was in, was it in Texas? Yes. So the first one was in Texas, and obviously happened to a Latin American community, and it was awful, awful, of course it was. And then there was another one that happened, and that didn't seem to get as much press. It didn't. Uh, or that might have been just what happened in Europe and the way the BBC presented it, because the BBC pushed forward the, the one that happened in Texas, and that one, it seemed to be swept under the carpet. Is that fair to say? Or? It for sure received less attention. I mean, there were fewer fatalities in Ohio shooting, but still nine people were killed. Mm. That's a lot. And so I think... You know, it's about media narratives. It's the fact that the El Paso shooter in Texas was targeting Mexicans and he left behind a manifesto where his ideas um, create a c c easy headlines, for example, of it because he had xenophobic views. Like, it's much easier to sensationalize that type of story and make people... Um, go crazy on social media, whereas the Ohio shooter was a bit more complicated in that um, he didn't leave behind a, a right-wing manifesto in his social media account, certainly show, didn't show him being sympathetic to white supremacy or anything like that, quite the contrary. So uh, I think ideology has a lot to do with that. I mean, you see it often when uh, criminal violent acts are committed by somebody who is part of a historically marginalized community, there's, um, I think with journalists, they don't want to focus too much on it because they're always afraid of how it could uh, negatively impact the perception of a community. Whereas if that suspect or criminal is a, a white man 
particularly if he is seen as potentially conservative anyways, and it's a free-for-all. So that's just the nature of uh, the media in the United States as well as this country. And how much do you think this is about language? Because we've had a number of people on this show talking about, uh, you know, in Britain, Brexit voters being called Nazis, uh, being milkshaked, Brexit, pro-Brexit politicians being called Nazis, being milkshaked. How much of this do you think is about the fact that if you keep calling everyone Nazis, there will be some people who eventually actually believe it? And then, I mean, look, if, if I thought that there were genuine Nazis coming, right, well, I, I probably would use violence to, to try and defend myself. Do you know what I mean? So how much of it is about we've, we've managed to persuade ourselves that there's this horde of Nazis coming for all of us, uh, and some of these people are now buying into that idea when the, the reality wouldn't suggest that? You know, I think it would be easier to, for me to step back and just sort of accept that um, the nature of, of ad hominem insults is like, you know, constantly trying to outdo the other. And so like, if Nazis had just remained an insult and stayed that was used as part of this rhetoric, then that's one thing. But what happened is that uh, punch a Nazi became a meme that was quite celebrated. Mm. And you know, like, Richard Spencer is an easy person to, um, for, to, for people to hate, but then, like, as I said a moment ago, the definition of Nazi has become kind of meaningless now, and so it's just applied very, very broadly, and there's people now who think, well, if this person's a Nazi, it's okay to punch him or her, right? Or do something worse. So language has something to do with it, but I think it's more so that the actions now are the response to people you dislike, like shutting them down through violent attacks is seen as acceptable. I mean, it was in this country that milkshaking became this new ph phenomenon that very quickly crossed the Atlantic, and it was pretty much universally celebrated by uh, your chattering classes, as well as the American ones, too. I mean, it was basically described, um, the American left-wing punditry, as a cute form of political dissent. But we can saw how quickly that, that slippery slope, right? And like what happened to me that day, the milkshaking served a particular pur purpose, primarily one, to mock me as a target for everybody else in the crowd, because there are many people who knew my name and my writings, but didn't know my face. Mm. So, you know, that literally, yeah, it's like a big arrow direct to me once I have all that stuff on me. And then secondly, it blinds you as well when it goes in your face and your eyes and you can't even see. So it's very insidious and I am concerned that there's, like it should really, you know, in developed liberal democracies, like, Political violence should be something that's universally condemned, but now it's not. It's kind of like you hear a lot of, I don't support violence, but these people are X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah. So. Oh, it's, just, it's despicable. And we talked about it at the time with many people. I mean, mm. the idea that you can go around throwing stuff at people because you don't agree with them is not what a democracy is. And it just it should be condemned by everybody, irrespective of whether you agree with the people or not. Uh, and the fact that a lot of people uh, felt very comfortable with that uh, was deeply troubling to me. Just the milkshaking alone, what happened to you is obviously incredibly serious and, and, and 
much more clearly defined. But I've always said that, you know, milk attacking someone by throwing the milkshake at them, they don't know what's in that cup. They don't know. And so the whole point of it is you're scaring the person and they don't know what that liquid is. It could yes. be acid. It could be anything. And, and of course, it's intimidation. It's designed specifically to prevent people from speaking. Uh, it's political violence designed to shut down discussion. That's, that's what it is. Guys, we wanted to tell you we're very excited to say we've got a new sponsor, which is HelloFresh. Uh, indeed, we have. HelloFresh is the UK's leading recipe box service, delivering fresh pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step -step recipes to your door. It is the easy, convenient way to cook delicious dinners from scratch every single time. Choose your favorites from 19 recipes every week. They have a whole range of options there for you, including recipes that are ready in under 20 minutes. There's family favorites, there's British cuisine, there's world cuisine. The fresh ingredients come direct from suppliers, i.e. they've been picked by Constantine's family. You, you can tell Francis studied geography at a British school because he can't tell the difference between Russia and Romania. Doesn't matter, mate. Same thing. Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> and the great thing is it's been pre-portioned for you, so there's no food waste just like in my home country of Venezuela. <laughs> the great thing with HelloFresh is that you're gonna be able to choose from 19 different recipes every week. So there is something for everybody. You're gonna be able to eat with your kids. There's gonna be no fuss. Dinner time is gonna be solved. Yeah, I really like the rapid box, which allows you to cook things in under, under 20 minutes. Uh, but the great thing about HelloFresh as well is it actually allows you to open up your cooking range. So most households on average have about six recipes that they cook regularly. Uh, HelloFresh has up to 19, so you can kind of expand a little bit in terms of your cooking. And of course, they also don't have a fixed subscription, so there's no term. You can cancel, you can uh, skip weeks, you can change the size of the box, uh, you can change delivery address, you can do all kinds of stuff to suit your life. To enjoy delicious moments, head over to hellofresh.co.uk, choose your box, choose your delivery slot, and add your favorite recipes. Discover the easy way to get delicious dinners from scratch, and if you do that, you'll get sick abs just like me. HelloFresh, we're offering trigonometry fans 60 pounds off four boxes. To take advantage of that, go to hellofresh.co.uk, enter our special code, which is of course trigonometry, and enjoy delicious dinners without any of the drama. Let's, let's talk about some of the stuff that's happened more recently because one of the things uh, that we, we know now is that um, there was some criticism of you and an attempt to present you in a particular light. And I wanted to speak to you about that and see what you had to say about it because there was this video released. It's an 18-minute video. I found it quite boring and difficult to watch. But basically, if, if I can represent what is being said about it and then you can say what you think about it, and correct me if any of my thing is not accurate to what people are saying, right? Uh, what I think people are saying is uh, you were part, you were walking together with a right-wing group of, mm -hmm. uh, is it Petra Prayer, mm -hmm. right? Who, uh, who were planning to attack a bar in which these Antifa people hang out. And you were participating or at least observing a conversation in which they were planning this violent attack. Um, and people have used that to essentially say, and Andy No is not an objective journalist. What he is is someone who hates Antifa, so he records all their violent crimes. But when it comes to right-wing violence, which also does exist, uh, he doesn't record that, he doesn't present that, and therefore he presents a skewed picture. Um, 
And they've then gone on to say that that's why you left Quillette. So tell us about that. Yes, so I left Quillette a week before this latest controversy broke out. It was a mutual decision. I'm moving on to other projects. I'm going to be working on a book. Uh, just don't have time to continue to be working with Quillette. And it's been a great experience. And I'm very thankful for the time that I've had there. Those who dislike me use that as we're trying to link it with the latest outrage, this video that's come out that some headlines describe as damning and has fueled very serious accusations against me. Actually, I think criminal um, accusations of criminality in that I was party to a violent criminal conspiracy, conspiracy or had knowledge of it that withheld it from the authorities. It's absolutely all untrue. It's rubbish. This video, I actually encourage everybody to watch it. It's kind of like watching paint dry. It's 18 minutes. So that was recorded on the 1st of May, 2019, May Day. There were a series of demonstrations throughout the day. I had been documenting it. It was early in the day that I had been uh, punched in the abdomen and sprayed with silly string. And so that happened all before this video started. There was a right-wing demonstration where they were holding flags over a bridge. And after that was over, they were milling around the street and walking around. I was just following them. It was really uneventful. It was actually quite boring. I was thinking, I was looking at my phone, which you can actually see in the video, one, to see how the other journalists had covered the protests from earlier in the day, see if there's anything else that I missed because it was happening at different parts of the city. And uh, I was trying to see if anybody had caught video of me getting assaulted. So that's what I was looking at and concentrated on. I only heard snips, snippets of what these people were talking about. And none of it, t to me, was interesting. It was like, um, where are we going to go? Is anybody else joining us? What's going on? Like, so I didn't record that. It wasn't, uh, and I, mind you, I need to point out, I wasn't the only photojournalist that was there. There were three other people, including a local left-wing journalist, by the way. So none of us found any of this interesting. Um, there was at one point where people have said, uh, some of the headlines have been completely false, demonstrably false, if you watch the video, saying that I laughed while people were planning a, an attack. I never laughed in the video. There was a one point where I did give a faint smile. I recall them saying something about how they were really outnumbered. And I was just at that time thinking about, like, this is what, you know, they're always outnumbered 10 to 1 if they're lucky. Like, this is the futility of their demonstrations in progressive Portland. And that was spun as me being approving or supportive of whatever happened next. And I don't think it was apparent to any of us there uh, what was going to happen next, because even this, this video who was recorded by an undercover Antifa activist, someone who had been undercover for two years, and this is like the climax of his work, right? It, one, it was selectively released in that he doesn't show any, any of what happened actually at the Antifa pub that was hosting the Antifa party. Doesn't show any of that. And that, I, that was where I was seriously assaulted there as well. And so um, 
he levied accusations against me anonymously. Um, it's an unverified, well, one is an anonymous person, so it's an unverified source. And that it, the fact is, this, uh, he was interviewed and it went on a, uh, on a left wing blog called the Portland Mercury, which is also a paper. And, you know, it's like this whole, like watching myself being smeared in real time and made into somebody I'm not has been really fascinating and kind of surreal. It's like, seeing how um, it's a game of telephone almost. It's like, it's, and all the players are, you know, the, the writers at HuffPo, uh, Vox, or Vice, and then all the Twitter checkmarks people who are kind of part of the same left-wing, scorchers, partisan, ideological write writers. And it's just like, Oh, somebody said Andy was laughing when, when he... Andy is laughing in a damning video. Let's repeat that in the headlines. And over and over and over. And it just, you know, they really depend on people not watching it. Um, what happened next in that video is that, well, I went to the bar and, and actually in the interview with uh, this anti anonymous anti-fair activist, he stopped recording at one point not to call the police, but to call the people at the Antifa party. You know, so if this was, if he was really witnessing um, a violent criminal conspiracy, I wonder why he didn't call police. Mm. And this video footage, even at the very end of the interview, he said he didn't realize what he had caught until much, until sometime later before releasing it. So it wasn't apparent to him. And he was right there talking to the people. And I was walking around the area, sometimes close, mostly far away, as well as being concentrated with things on my phone. Okay. So just to be clear, what you're saying is at no point did you feel that these people were about to go and attack someone in a bar? I didn't have a full picture that would have led me to that conclusion. Correct. Mm. And Andy, do you think we're entering this really dangerous period now for journalism where every journalist and every journalistic publication seems to be advocacy journalism and that people just want to push their narrative and they will twist the facts in order to suit their own narrative. And actually, what happened, the facts, nobody seems to care about anymore. Yes, you know, and I need to, you know, self-introspection is, is very important to me and integrity and all that. So I need to point out that not everything that the critics say about me are, are wrong. Mm. Some of it has merit. For example, um, just the nature of on the ground, breaking news reporting with things that are happening, many things happening at the same time. Sometimes, in that very moment, you may get a detail wrong. You don't have the advantage of the multiple angles that come out in the hours later, and of course, you know, the, basically the crowdsourcing of fact-checking of something. So right? the hammer thing would be a good example, where the hammer was on the bus, but you initially mentioned it being... I actually never described where it came from, okay. but in the video you do see that it, at one point one of the uh, people from the Antifa side did have the hammer, I didn't know that it originally came from inside. Yeah. I came out and corrected the record for that. And then I released a video that I, um, two days, a few days later that I didn't have access to initially that was like the full uncut that showed, you know, the, the group of people descending on that bus. Kind of like the whole, like there's context to that hammer being taken out. You know, like you can make an argument that potentially it was self-defense. And if you watched the unedited video, uh, it was people from the outside who charged towards the door, by the way. So, um, yes, there's that. I had to correct that. There was some other small details. So this is stuff that it's like, 
I mean, relatively small um, mistakes that I correct, but then they use to sort of say that everything I say is a lie. And I, you know, it's like, I'm just one individual working as a, a as an independent journalist, a freelance writer. You know, you see huge mistakes being done by people like on MSNBC or CNN, and they have an entire department of fact checkers and editors behind them, and they still get some mistakes. They still, you know, it's just um, so like taking cheap shots at me like that. I think is disingenuous, particularly when. These writers are either in D.C. or New York City and not on the ground in Portland and seeing and witnessing what happens. I mean, you know, um, it's just, it doesn't seem like good faith argument. Um, but, you know, I, there is some merit to it in that I have gotten things wrong that I correct. Um, but the other smears that are coming out now that I am that I coordinate with far-right people, it's, it's outrageous. So there was another news story that came out in the Willamette Week, which is a local paper in Portland. I, um, and they had a, obtained a, a secret recording of, I guess, men that were inside that bus. I think, I don't know if it was before or after that hammer thing, I think it was after. So they released that, and at one point one of the men was talking about how Andy Ngo got beat up because he turned down the Proud Boys' offer of security. Mm. And then the, the commentary in a news story, not an opinion piece, by the way, a news story was that this was evidence of me colluding with the Proud Boys. And I don't know if I'm... It's, it's, like, I've, it's like we're reading and listening to different things because, um, you know, there was an outpouring of support to me after the May Day attack where I was uh, sprayed with bear mace in the face and was blinded. And I had, so I had a whole bunch of people that I didn't know offer to be volunteer security if I go out and cover more protests. I turned down those offers because I wanted to maintain my own independence. And now that is used as evidence of coordination. So I don't, you know, like this whole thing seems like uh, we're through the looking glass. I, you know, I feel like I don't know if the world's going mad or if it's me, but it's like, it's amazing that like, for me, the victim of multiple, multiple assaults in, in, in having my dress docs. And part of the reason I'm in the UK is actually was because there continue violent threats to myself that have been reported to police and I just need to get away, far away from the US. And like, me being the victim of all that is now somehow spun around as I am, like an extreme violent person who is the aggressor, who deserves all this, or was brought it on myself. Um, it's, it's almost like a dream. It just it doesn't seem like this is really reality to me. It's scary to me how many people are delighted about what's happened. I mean, I've, uh, before our interview, I watched a clip of uh, the Young Turks Mm. and David Pakman both talking mm -hmm. about this. And particularly the Young Turks. I mean, the way that they, they try and present themselves as, as, as objective journalists, and then he goes, yeah, well, conservatives don't feel any empathy. And, and it's just like, how can you even pretend to be in any way objective when you, when you talk in that way? And neither of us is conservative. We just try and talk to people who, who may, we may disagree with or who may... But you can't, 
you can't talk about people in that way and then present yourselves as objective. But they, they, they used exactly the phraseology that you talked about, something along the lines of, well, of course, violence shouldn't be used, but... And, and that happened in that video a couple of times. And I was like, do you understand what you're saying? Anything you said before the word but doesn't count, you know? Um, so obviously there is, there is a large group of people who are very happy about you being treated in this way. Yes. Um, why, do you, why do they see you as such a threat, do you think? Because I'm a decent professional person who has quite reach in my writings. Like many people who have been very critical of Antifa have been confined to other blogs or YouTube videos, whereas my writings have been published in the Wall Street Journal and the National Review, the New York Post, and I was with Quillette. And so it's just like... And what, with what happened to me on the 29th of June, it, it kind of woke up some of the politicians to start speaking about Antifa's extremism, which hadn't been done before. So I, I am a, a perceived as a, a threat, understandably, to them because for so long they've just been receiving pretty much only favorable coverage. And the fact that now there's somebody who's can't be relied on to provide favorable coverage consistently, who calls them out on their actions, and who has a reach that, you know, I have quite a large reach on Twitter. My, the places that publish me have a large, peop, large amounts of people reading it. It's, they see that their control over the narrative is slipping a bit. And actually, they really depend on that, that control over how they are perceived because their actions an ideology is so extreme that they really do have to rely on those who are willing to whitewash and rationalize the things they do. And once that gets challenged, whoever's doing the challenging needs to be taken out by any means necessary. Andy, um, you, you strike me as being a very brave person in the truest sense of the word. You, your life could be a hell of a lot easier if you didn't do this. Why do you feel the need as a journalist to put yourself in the firing line and to put your body on the line as well? I have a lot of journalist friends who told me, Andy, you should just move on to write other things, like the pile on that happens every time you do some, one of these things, the, uh, the scrutiny on every single detail, every single word you say, um, like it's just not worth it, that living that type, under that type of pressure and on top of you know, the threats of violence. And I think I've refused to be cowed because the, the things that Antifa has been doing to me for months is to terrorize me into silence. And I think with the, the crowd beating on the 29th of June, that was meant to like attempt to permanently silent, silence me and they failed. And I just, I refuse to give them that type of victory. You know, of course, moving forward, uh, I'm much more wise about how I cover events and that I, I no longer, unfortunately, no longer believe that the Portland police are willing to uphold the law, for example. So even if I'm covering Antifa in, right in front of the police, I, I was naive to think that the police would actually protect an, you know, a citizen just in a public space. So there's things that have changed, but I'm sticking on this. There's other things I write about that makes people on the far left and the left hate me. You know, I write about hate crime hoaxes quite a bit. That was originally how I kind of started receiving some notoriety earlier this year. And that 
challenges and weakens the Antifa narrative, which is that we are living in such an oppressive, dangerous time that violence is justified against the oppressors. And the oppressors can be anything from regular Trump supporters to those truly on the far right. But that's, I mean, that's a huge spectrum of people that they all oppose with the same hatred and violence. So um, I'm going to continue to speak out, I recognize. And, and, you know, I want to be a better journalist too. The mistakes that I've made that I've had to correct, I mean, it's embarrassing every time that happens. But, you know, any journalist with in integrity recognizes that and works to improve on it. So, you know, I have goals that I have to work on for myself moving forward. Um, at the same time, you know, when something's an outright lie against me, as some of these headlines are right now, they're outright lies. And, you know, I'd just like to say I've, my legal team is aware of it because I think some of the claims against me rises to the level of libel, libel and defamation. Mm. Well, I was going to ask you, you're here in, in London, in England. Uh, we had something not similar, but we had some protests recently. Do you think we're going to see more of this across the world? These running battles between people on the two extremes? The issues that we're seeing with Antifa more recently is really kind of confined to the Anglosphere. I mean, Antifa activism in Germany is a kind of entirely different thing because they actually do have a history that goes back decades of this group. Um, and some of the ideas that are from America, I notice are bouncing off to the far left militants in Britain. Um, what I'm I was encouraged to see was that the London Metropolitan Police even without having any of the heavily militarized gear that you see American police have, they were able to contain law and order. For example, last weekend when there was an Antifa demonstration against Tommy Robinson supporters, they were marching on the street, so they had disrupted traffic. And before they could really do that for much longer, the police just surrounded them in such large numbers that they couldn't do anything and, they, and the police pushed them to the pavement. So they, one, they could no longer disrupt traffic. Some of them were carrying um, some small sticks that had sharpened ends that was taken. And it seemed like because the police are quick to act, they're not emboldened to see how much they can push. Because in Portland, it wasn't like right away that you know they were attacking <coughs> people in the street. It was like, okay, first we're gonna take over the streets and we can do it. Secondly, some of us are going to bring in bats or brass knuckles or small knives and bear mace, and we get away with it. And the next thing is we're going to start using it. Like, so, you know, like the incidents of political violence in Britain that I've seen have been much more isolated and small. I mean, I know that um, some of the controversial uh, political people who ran as MEPs not too long ago were targeted, but like that's the violence that I saw there wasn't anything like what we, we, we see, continue to see in Portland. So um, I think that as more attention is brought to the dangers of normalizing political violence in liberal democracies, I think police will naturally face more pressure to do more. Unfortunately, in Portland, our police commissioner is also our mayor, so that may be the one exception. But um, what I'm really concerned about is just that the wider public 
will accept and encourage those types of violent actions because they believe that it's for a, a better cause or a good cause. Uh, I think that's extremely damaging to how citizens relate to one another. It's like um, if you erase the line between thoughts, ideas, and actions, like that. I mean, there are many parts of the world actually where, depending on the just the idea that you hold, you can be put to death for it, either by the state or through a mob lynching. And so, it worries me that many influential people here, who have benefited from the the rights that come in the civil rights that come in liberal democracy, that they are, in a way, working to weaken those sort of like those rules that are codified into law, but as well as expected between one another. Um, that's what I'm concerned about. And do you think we're going to be able to, because at the moment, I mean, maybe it's just, you know, the, the effect of the internet. You look at the internet, everybody seems to be more polarised than ever. You know, we seem to be bracketing ourselves into certain camps. Do you think that we're going to be able to heal this division? Or do you, do you see it just becoming worse and worse? Well, in your country, you're dealing with Brexit now, and it does seem like it's getting worse and worse. And Thanks for that, Andy, mate. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Um... <laughs> But you have, I mean, your prime minister, as hated as he is by some people, is I also see him make, doing good effort to be a unifier. Um, in America, it's a bit harder in that, you know, the president, you know, that's Trump is Trump, that he hasn't changed a bit from the campaign days in 2015. And so um, there are going to be people who will try everything they can to exploit this polarization because it benefits them politically. Mm. And um, so I'm a bit more hopeful about Britain than I am about America in this regard. Well, I don't normally do this before we ask our last question. Is it, do you think Trump's getting re-elected? Yes. Hmm. So do I. It's interesting. All right. Well, let's do our last question on that right. happy note. <laughs> on that happy note. Uh, so the, the question that we always ask, Andy, is what is a one thing people aren't talking about but actually really should be talking about? Mm. Sorry, I'm th I should have prepared this. No, no, it's, no, it's absolutely fine. Well, this is sort of the paradox. There's a lot of people talking about social justice, extremism, and craziness in the universities, in the American universities, for example, but also with some campuses in the UK. Yeah. I mean, your um, student union is uh, particularly outrageous. Um, I think what's not being looked at in this particular instance is that this idea, those ideas that were formerly confined to certain disciplines in university, they now have outlets to be mainstreamed across the rest of society. Yeah, we, we read The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. And this yeah. is why we talked about the contract that I turned down. That's why I turned it down, because I'm going, it's going to bleed into real life. 
all the social justice stuff is going to bleed into real things. It's not just going to stay at the university because these people are going to grow up and they're going to become politicians, judges, journalists, and they're going to spread all this crap. And that's why I think people who are sane need to need to stop it and say something, which is what you're doing. So uh, all the best of luck to you with it. Uh, we wish you uh, well. Uh, take care of yourself. Thank you. Uh, wear a helmet or something at least if you do go into these places. Um, Joe Rogan said to you, you should bring some big guys with you, uh, but you're clearly not planning to do that, are you? No. Um, you know, I can't reveal my, my reporting tactics, but there are many ways when you get creative of how you can cover a demonstration without necessarily putting yourself there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He's going to use drones. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea, actually, drones. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. a good idea. Uh, you know, in Russia, uh, this is completely irrelevant to what we're talking about, but in Russia, they use drones to fly over all the uh, politicians and oligarchs mansions to show how these people are living so they infiltrate the whole thing with the drone and then they do a whole report about how it's all you built using stolen money ah yeah. well there you go so there's an idea for you andy anyway thank you so much for coming on andy we really appreciate your time uh, as always follow andy we'll put the thing in the bottom of the video on twitter he, he puts his uh, reporting there follow us at triggerpod on other social media and we will see you in a week from now. And also as well, uh, please leave us a nice review on iTunes. If you're enjoying uh, the podcast uh, or the, the show, tell another person. If you're worried about it, just tell them quietly. Uh, and we will see you next week. Thank you so much. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.